0: Hello and welcome to Tax Yak, a tax banter podcast. We love yakking about tax, so we've invited a range of tax experts and tax practitioners to have a chat with us. We hope you enjoy this episode of Tax Yak. I'm George Houssakos and I'm also joined by Nicole Rowan. Uh, Nicole and I are both senior tax trainers with Tax Banter, and we're co-hosts of today's podcast. I'm joined by Nick Kalanikios, consulting director at Shinewig Australia and director at Cornwalls. Nick is an accredited GST specialist. Nick is an experienced tax practitioner, having commenced his career at the ATO in 1983 before joining the in-house tax team at a big four bank for 12 years. And for close to 20 years, at a big four accounting firm where Nick led the National Indirect Tax Practice. This is the first time we've asked Nick to have a yak about tax. Today, we're going to have a conversation about Australia's goods and services tax, which we'll now refer to by its better known acronym of GST. We'll be taking a deep dive into GST tricks, traps, and time bombs that remain as relevant today as they were back on 1 July, 2000, when GST was introduced in Australia. Nick, welcome to Yak. George and Nicole, thanks for having me.
1: Thanks for jo- joining us today, Nick. I must just um, quickly say, I um, practiced in accounting in the 90s and I got out of accounting uh, about 1998 or something like that. So it got out just before GST was introduced. So I'm looking forward to learning a bit today.
0: And I'm sure, Nicole, all our (laughs) listeners in Australia and and abroad are sharing that same sentiment. So um, where are we at with Australia's GST system today? GST has been a key element of Australia's tax base since 1 July 2000. And we celebrated its 20th birthday last year in 2020. For our international listeners, GST is levied at a rate of 10% in Australia. According to Treasury Department documents, GST recently made up the fourth largest component of Australia's tax base at 12%, sitting behind personal income tax at 19%, at 39% in first place, company tax at 19%, but also state local taxes in equal place, second place at 19%. As with most federations around the world, state and territory governments in Australia spend much more money than they collect in revenue. The perennial revenue shortfall for state and territory governments in Australia is made up by grants of billions of dollars from the Australian federal government each year. In order to try to address this revenue shortfall back in 2000, the federal government passes over all GST revenue to the state and territory governments in Australia. Nick, if we cast our minds back to the year 2000, GST in Australia only came into existence because of a pragmatic political compromise, which resulted in an extended range of GST exemptions, which we also know by the term of GST free goods, um, well beyond what the Australian Treasury department originally intended. Um, and George. Nick, Nick um, there was uh, quite a, a gap between um, the draft bill in 98 and also the final bill that we saw in 99, wasn't there?
2: There, there was indeed, George. And, and but perhaps it's useful to touch a, a little bit on uh, the 98 period. Um, The Howard government uh, very much was looking to reform tax uh, and to simplify the process as well as to address the concerns that you've mentioned before about funding the states. And the bill as as it was proposed, and to be fair, the reform package as was proposed by the Howard government Uh, included certain things within the tax base uh, and specifically food was included within the tax base Um, the Howard government took that to the 98 election in October uh, was elected on the reform package that we know as not a new tax system a new sorry not a new tax a new tax system ants and in that package was food. And it was there for a specific reason of trying to make sure that the uh, GST regime that was being proposed was simple. Um, If you cast your mind back to the early 90s and in particular 93 uh, with Dr. John Hewson, then opposition leader, taking his fight back package to the electorate uh, he stumbled on a question regarding whether or not a birthday cake would be more expensive under the GST regime that he proposed and it became obvious to everyone then in selling a GST uh, you needed to make the message simple but you also needed to make the tax simple but but you're quite right the Australian Democrats uh, led by uh, Meg Lees uh, were determined to try and uh, gained some political relevance at the time. And the way they thought they might do that would be to uh, appeal to the broader population uh, by excluding from the GST net uh, certain items. And the item that they focused on was food and to a lesser degree education. Um, to be fair, education uh, was designed to be GST free. They just expanded it a little bit. Um, what they flowed from that, what they flowed from that, although we got the GST through the Senate uh, and we got the legislation, uh, complexity started to creep in, and you started to lose uh, the simplicity that uh, the Treasury and the Treasurer at the time, Peter Costello, were looking for. Uh, and as you would have seen over the years, we've had some litigation in the area of food classification, which is. Uh, mini ciabatta crackers, bread, or are they biscuits? And uh, uh, that kind of thing is an issue. If I can put to one side uh, the policy and that aspect of it um, and address the other thing that you're uh, highlighting, which is the importance of uh, revenue, the exclusion of food, even though in a limited way, for basic food items or fresh food items. Uh, Even though it's excluded in a limited way, it's estimated to cost the revenue $6 billion uh, annually in foregone collections.
0: Um, That's quite a sizeable amount. And I I agree with all those sentiments, Nick. And I I even shut up Uh, walking past cake shops thinking of poor old John Hewson back in 1993 and that birthday cake that was that was a a very uh, uncomfortable interview Um, certainly
1: a classic piece of history of political history isn't it but and that Um, example of the history of the GST really proves to us how interwoven politics is with tax reform and it's important to actually follow politics even for that reason alone because of the the way that the different parties including the minor parties have an uh, impact on our tax reform outcomes that you just cannot separate those two um, issues of politics and tax.
2: Well, Nicole, I really think that's important, particularly if we sort of revert back to George's comment about it being the right time to look at tax reform. Uh, And then if I just add into that equation, uh, a couple of the other major exclusions from the tax base, which are uh, education and health, and each one of those is estimated to cost $3 billion in foregone revenue annually. So all of a sudden, if we're looking at food, we're looking at education and health, uh, we're looking at $12 billion annually. And GST as it currently is, collects around 64 to $65 billion. So we're looking at close to 20% increase in the tax base. Um, Often though, the discussion doesn't focus on the width of the base. Um, it usually gravitates towards whether or not 10% is the appropriate rate for our GST. And uh, as you would appreciate, that's considerably below the OECD average of 19.3%. So there's a question there as to um, whether or not they're scoped to increase the rate, as we've seen happen in other countries. I was just going to conclude with that we can't simply limit tax reform to a discussion around GST. We need to address those other things that relate to uh, federalism, which is if we expect the states to deliver a certain level of services, um, we then need to provide them with the revenue. Uh, And between the states, we need to make sure that States like uh, Western Australia are getting more than 36 cents in the dollar or whatever it was a couple of years back uh, of the GST take in their state. So federalism needs to be revisited as part of this broader question of
0: tax reform. And uh, I think that's, uh, you've covered off on a a number of big ticket items, Nick, and uh, uh, moving forward, uh, when we consider a base rape deduction, uh, discussion. Australia's Productivity Commission has stated that GST is a relatively efficient tax, but as you stated, Nick, with the exclusions, that approximately only 47% of Australia's national consumption is subject to GST. And when you touched upon the GST exemptions that we have, also known as GST free status items for food, for education, for health and and other matters, um, it leads to significant complexity and compliance costs. But when we compare ourselves to our cousins across the Tasman, they have a greatly reduced compliance costs in regard to their GST. They have a higher rate at fifteen percent, and worldwide, as you said, that average is quite high. So maybe it it might be that right time to look at things. And the other thing I want to throw into that debate, Nick, is that when we look at compliance costs, it shouldn't just be GST, but when we look at compliance costs for business, it's estimated to be over $40 billion per annum in Australia for federal, state and local government charges. So by looking at that federalism model that you raised, Nick, is it time to actually look at whether we can get some quick wins on the board, but also at the same time, um, look at genuine reform in that space.
2: Totally, totally agree with you there, George. And uh, if I could just compare uh, Australia at collecting GST only on 47 cents of every dollar that's spent in our economy to the New Zealand experience, which is around 97 cents of every dollar spent in New Zealand uh, attracts GST. So you can see the the concessions in our base uh, uh, cost the revenue a considerable amount. Um, If I can also then just touch again on this federalism point, um, we expect the states to spend around $220 billion a year uh, in providing various services, health, education and so forth. Um, the states are only able to raise around uh, uh, 120 of that on their own. Um, They get a further 60 to 65 billion kicked in by uh, GST revenue. So there's always a shortfall that the states then have to uh, depend on the Commonwealth for grants. Um, So we can either change the relationship between the states and the Commonwealth where the Commonwealth is left to do A bit more of the heavy lifting which is unlikely to happen or we can continue to go down the path of uh, taxes like gst by either increasing uh, the rate or broadening the base or introducing new taxes that are administered centrally in the same way that the gst is the other aspect that's important to remember is the gst was a replacement tax Um, it was a replacement for a number of Uh, state taxes that were regarded as inefficient. And uh, examples of that were the financial institutions duty and the bank account debits tax, uh, which were taxes essentially on uh, account keeping and banking transactions. And the same scope exists to do the same thing now, which is to fix the mix and start getting rid of some of those uh, inefficient state taxes like there's Stamp duties on insurance products. Uh, And we've seen a recent example proposal by the New South Wales government to remove stamp duty on land transfers and have that replaced with uh, an expanded uh, property or land tax, if you'd like to call it. So um, the states also have a large role to play in tax reform. We can't always simply turn to the federal treasurer. Uh, Josh Frydenberg and say uh, reform taxes, Uh, the states have to come to the party. But if we can just circle back to Nicole's point, tax reform is never popular, because most people think tax reform simply is another way of saying more taxes.
1: And when you have and- to bring in the states and get cooperation from them and see it's even more difficult I, I used to work in um, charity regulation and, and on uh, attempts to harmonize some of the uh, regulation of charities. so there's only 40,000 of them in Australia but even that across the states and territories was just so difficult so slow going. Um, and it's you know, they take a few steps each three or four years but yeah, very, um, very challenging you need um, some very brave. Uh, politicians to actually take that on Uh, they need to have a strong vision and and i think uh, you um also correctly pointed out um it's about the communication of it as well communication of your proposed reforms is really essential i just um just in terms of the reforms that have happened since introduction in the year 2000 um is that really the only i i would say significant reform um in the GST space, is, is the only one the removal of GST from feminine hy- hygiene products or have there been others along the way?
2: Um, there've been others along the way, yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and again, if you know, we just circle back to the importance of politics and social values, um, the question always arises as to how much uh, tax should incorporate social values and how much we should try and Mm. deal with those things through a tax uh, rather than dealing with it in some other way. Um, And quite often, uh, we need to think of tax reform in terms of uh, having an efficient tax that is simple to administer with fewer exceptions. uh, And to the extent then we need to provide social aspects to the community, uh, we do them through some kind of tax transfer system. Uh, by paying something through their income tax as a rebate or some other mechanism to to deal with it, even if it's a form of social security. Um, but fixing the mixer is a really important thing, Nicole. Um, but there have been other reforms mm. to GST, uh, too many <laughs> to mention on this sure, short podcast. Sure. Yep. <laughs> but, but George was also addressing the question of just uh, uh, GST tax compliance costs, uh, and the work done by the Productivity Commission. Um, George, did you want to expand
0: on the question or your thinking there? Oh, uh, just, just uh, before I tackle that, I'll just tie up a couple of things that we talked about. And I'm, I'm, I'm loving the discussion. Um, I, I wish to actually commend the, the New South Wales State Government for actually having what you talked about Nick and Nicole about bravery about willing to put up a new stamp duty system. Now, what I've actually heard is I've, I've spoken to a no, number of developers that I know, and they're saying, well, if New South Wales brings in an annual charge, and it means that we only need to hold properties for three to five years to develop them, that's much better than actually paying the large lump sum amount that we're paying in other states. So. We are seeing that bravery, and I and I welcome that. Yeah, um,
1: I share your thoughts on that, George. I, th- I think it's a very good idea, and I, I do hope that uh, that it gets up and and um, it extends um, to the other states and territories as well.
0: And, and tying that up, Nicola, Nick, when we go to the Productivity Commission reports, um, the Morrison government has um, continually referenced Productivity Commission reports, which state that um, state government taxes are uh, extremely inefficient, so and they are barriers to creating employment. So um, looking at the productivity cost, Nick, I think um, I welcome that bravery, uh, but also at the same time, um, just putting that number out there, that $40 billion is a lot of money currently spent on compliance costs. And now with COVID and an opportunity to take the... Uh, the goodwill that the Morrison government has uh, achieved through managing the COVID crisis. Is it time to just uh, to put in some blue sky ideas about uh, uh, compliance costs, Nick?
1: Yeah, I, I'd uh, just like to say, I really like to understand why our compliance costs are so high in comparison and and then, yeah, I guess what, what are the um, possible ways of actually reducing those costs are? So yeah, go for it, Nick.
2: Well, if I can just steer away from the government perspective for a moment and come back to uh, the client base and look at small, medium enterprises and look at what they can do. Um, There's no doubt that our GST shouldn't be thought of as something that was introduced in 2000 because it has a long history as a value-added tax in Europe. Um, And even New Zealand introduced theirs in 85, if we look across uh, uh, the Tasman to our our Kiwi cousins. Uh, There's something to be said for uh, GST being a simple concept that is well understood. And over the years, uh, the the various providers of uh, enterprise resource uh, uh, systems, have built in various aspects into their ERPs. Um, In addition to that, a number of providers have developed what uh, often gets referred to as tax engines that allow for the determination of GST treatment. And also more and more, we've seen the automation of procurement processes and the automation of BAS preparation processes. So I would encourage encourage SMEs uh, to look firstly towards uh, enhancing their business systems, not only to improve their business efficiency, um, but to reduce their compliance costs. Um, The challenges of reducing the compliance costs at the policy level and again, just circling back to the use of the word harmonization that you use, Nicole. um, States and territories have been looking to harmonize their duties and other legislation, and to a large degree have done pretty well, but you still have to look at each state or territory's piece of legislation in order to work out the answer. Um, The level of harmonization isn't the same thing as having a single act, like the GST Act, and then having the revenue shared out amongst them. So there's things that can be done at both ends, but I I don't want to suggest to businesses that they can't be doing something at the very minute to improve and reduce uh, their compliance costs. And
0: thank you for that, Nick, um, because SME compliance costs are a constant, uh, source of focus for, for practitioners, but also for their clients. So, But when we look at GST, Nick, unlike income tax, GST actually has BAS agents playing a significant role. And BAS agents are often that, that, that second set of eyes that check uh, GST liabilities or refunds when it comes to reports prepared by the clients. So, as an experienced uh, GST practitioner, Nick, when it comes to uh, automation and automation of tax codes and automation of return preparation, it, it's it's not really something that you referred to, Nick, is something that could have been looked at in two thousand. It's really one of those issues that are out there that. The, the professions uh, tackles constantly and we need to make sure that we're at the cutting edge there in Australia rather than sitting but sitting things uh, sitting on our heels and, and and resting on our laurels.
2: I concur uh, with that, uh, George and. Uh, again, I, I do want to uh, e- emphasize what you said, which is the importance of having a review or a check function. And uh, whether that's performed by the BAS agent or someone else within the chain, um, I think that is a, a very critical role. And if you look at where the ATO is taking the discussion, uh, particularly in relation to streamlined assurance reviews and you look at their publication uh, around uh, GST and governance, uh, the focus is more towards doing regular reviews and regular checks, so self-regulation, using data analytic tools to do those checks so that the ATO has assurance around and confidence around uh, the tax system itself. And again, we can't move away from the fact that GST is a transactional tax and a small dollar error could be replicated numerous times to become a very large headache and a very costly headache at that. So uh, the focus should be on transaction testing, analytics, and making sure that the system works in a healthy way. And and BAS agents can perform a role there as well.
0: And, and I think that's the real challenge, Nick. Um, we we really need to make sure with all practitioners that they're, they're on board with those challenges. But additionally, when it comes to understanding where the ATO is laying out the regulatory landscape, um, we need to make sure that practitioners understand uh, what a color coding of white means, what a color coding of red, amber, green means, and Um, practitioners need to get themselves around certain key documents because the ATO receive billions of bits of data every year. So they're getting better and better each year incrementally at using that data, using those data matching activities to raise assessments. So when it comes to preparing for an ATO audit, uh, Nick, what? tips and traps do you have for our audience for example what publications uh do you recommend that they have a look at
2: we're 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 fortunate that we have uh uh, an ato that's trying to be helpful in that regard george Uh, and i don't mean that tongue-in-cheek i sincerely mean that that the ato is trying to be helpful uh towards in the second half of 2020, the ATO published its uh, revised booklet on uh, GST governance, uh, focusing on the tax risk framework that you need to have in place for GST. And in the appendices to that document, the ATO incorporated effectively some work plans that show the type of transaction testing that the ATO do when they come out on assurance reviews. And they also included examples of the type of uh, data analytics that the ATO run. So the ATO are approaching this more from a, have you got the cornerstone of a tax risk management framework in place? Uh, And that's referring to tax policy documents and so on. Including, including documenting processes of how your BAS is prepared, including the role of the BAS agent in that. Um, but then moving to make sure that the system has been correctly coded, uh, that you have correctly captured all the transactions and correctly characterised them from a GST perspective, and then running some samples just to make sure that it's operating properly. Um, Doing that work uh, ahead of the ATO knocking on your door uh, is certainly uh, the best way to prepare for an ATO audit. Uh, And again, um, I commend their document uh, on GST governance.
0: And I I think that's a must read Nick, um, particularly for if you've got clients in, in the large space, but even down to the SME space, because it's important to speak the same language with the ATO. So we, we, I really welcome the collaborative focus from the ATO in that regard, where they're actually mapping out and they're actually being quite frank and honest with the tax profession as to how they're actually going to go, not just what risk they're going to look at, but what processes they're going to go through and how they're going to conduct testing. So that document's a must and 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 needs to be commended. And I Nick, I just want also- to um,
1: sorry, George and Nick, I just want to clarify the document you're talking about. Is it called GST in governance? Is and something that you can get from the ATO website fairly easily? Um,
2: I will give you the correct name of it, Nicole. Um, I have a copy handy. Uh, it's headed, uh, GST Governance Data Testing, and Transaction Testing Guide.
1: Excellent. So. Uh, GST Governance Data Testing and Transaction Testing Guide. Uh, C- correct. Readily available on the ATO website. Is that right?
2: Uh, uh, it's on the ATO website, readily oh, no, available. No, searching out.
1: the ATO's website can get a little tricky. Does it have a QC code at all? I might, I might have a quick look for one as whilst you're continuing.
2: Yeah, but please do, Nicole. Um, yep. I, I do have a paper copy in front of me, but not a a soft copy. And mine, unfortunately or fortunately, was uh an early draft released for comment, so so it, it may not be the official one that's on the website at
0: this stage. Yep. And and even things like, as you mentioned, Nick, when you look run through the, through those appendixes, they refer they generally um, refer back to key documents like the Taxpayer Charter, which every uh, practitioner should always consider reading because it, it sets out th- how the ATO will treat you. So uh, that document is important, but it's, it, as are the appendices. Um, the other And thing I do I- have
1: a QC code, sorry, um, George, before you move on, it's, it's QC64203. And hopefully everyone knows that the best way to find things on the ATO website is to Um, identify the QC code. I keep a a bit of a a kind of list of them when I find useful um, website pages. So just type into any browser QC64203 and you'll find that um, governance guide.
0: Excellent, thank you, Nicole. Um, And Nick, you touched upon tax code settings and integrations. So uh, for our audience, it's always important to check when you're integrating and adding on software that with the accounting package, that the default settings are always correct. And I I think there's a lot of uh, good business practice and and collaborative relationships can always be worked out, worked on there. And it's important for BAS agents to actually just making sure they've got a good relationship with the GST specialist so when uh, the, uh, the our market's not static. Food companies are always creating new items. There's always new insurance products in, and other products in the financial supply space. So when it comes to tax code settings, it's important that Nick, I think it's critical that uh, tax practitioners have that relationship with the GST specialist just to make sure that those tax code settings are correct. Totally, totally endorse that, George. Uh,
2: The one one thing I I really think has changed in the uh, 20 years that GST's been around is the advancements in data analytic mining tools to uh, test whether or not your codes are correct. And as a result of the growth in that sector, uh, the cost of those tools and the cost of people providing those services as a support has substantially reduced. And uh, again, I, I strongly recommend that uh, people explore those opportunities. Um, you know, I, I'm not going to necessarily plug anything, but uh, just as an example, uh, Shine Wing have a, a very simple, very affordable product called Clear Tax Solutions. Um, and there are competitor products out there in the market that uh, are definitely tailored towards uh, the small, uh, medium end of the market, even though they can work for larger organisations, they're tailored for that
0: end of the market. And and that's something that really needs to be in uh, every practitioner's toolkit, Nick. Um, If if I can move on to GST and food, we did touch upon it. We, we, We mentioned that there are GST free items, there's 20 separate categories out there food being the major one. Um, But when we look at things like food in Australia's tax system, um, a test for a good tax policy, is it iterative? And uh, by that I mean, the the more often you do it, the does it actually get easier? And 20 years on with food, are we still confused with uh, certain food items? I know we've had the sushi sashimi debate Um, I know we've had uh, other debates around, for example, just uh, buying bread from the bakery, then you buy a cold chicken from the supermarket, that's GST free. But if you go to a takeaway shop, GST is in the price. So is is there a bit of scope for actually looking at another way to either bring food into the system or simplifying the rules around food, food, Nick? or is it just too hard?
2: Well, nothing's too hard, Uh, but if we start off with uh, the current state of play and uh, I think places like supermarkets and places that uh, use barcodes uh, and similar identifiers on their products uh, can take advantage of organizations uh, that govern those barcodes Uh, For for instance, uh, here in Australia, one of them is GS1 uh, and GS1 has a practice statement agreed with the ATO that if you rely on their barcode classification of of their product, then you're protected. And if the ATO becomes aware that that classification is incorrect, uh, you have the ability to make the changes going forward. There's no retrospective adjustment. so people uh, that are using barcodes and technology uh, to their uh, businesses' uh, advantage are in a different position. But if we go back to your uh, chicken example, and we can even simplify it further, um, you can go into the deli and buy uh, some pastrami as a cold cut, you can buy some salami as a cold cut, you can buy some prosciutto as a cold cut, And each of those is GST free. But if the supermarket or the deli uh, puts them on a tray and sells them to you as a tray of cold cuts that you might use as an antipasto, uh, then that becomes prepared food. And so in that sense, um, addressing the question, is it iterative? I'd say absolutely not. I'd say absolutely not. And, And that's what starts to happen when you start to try and Demarcate between is a mini ciabatta cracker a cracker biscuit or is it bread? Uh, you know, uh, uh, an example that I personally was involved with was um, a cheese roll for some reason in the explanatory memorandum that introduced GST is regarded as uh, GST free bread, but if you convert that into a, a, a pizza then it's subject to tax. And then the question becomes, well, what is a pizza roll that you might find in your bakery? Is it a pizza or is it just simply a cheese top roll? Um, we, shouldn't be having, we shouldn't be having those discussions. We shouldn't really be investing time in that regard. So uh, I'll go back to where we started the conversation. Um, the governments should revisit uh gst to see if it can be simplified further in its administration
1: there's no doubt that complexity leads to um, mistakes doesn't it or to increases mistakes you're going to go out there and say you know how to simplify it nick you're going to put some ideas forward there be more clear with what the government should do Remove all those GST-free exemptions? Is that where you're going?
2: So, to, well, not all of them, um, yep. but I, I think people need to be aware of the impact, Nicole, and, and particularly if you're looking yep. at the situation now of governments running deficits because they've had to fund uh, relief packages during uh, COVID uh, for most of 2020 and continuing on through 2021. Uh, if you're looking at the need to raise revenue, then you need to look at the impact. And uh, in, in a former life uh, at KPMG, we uh, uh, we did a couple of pieces of work for the CPAs that address the exact question that you're looking at, which is uh, what happens if we increase the base? Uh, what happens mm-hmm. if we increase the rates? How much more revenue do we get? Uh, I have also worked on something similar for the uh, Financial Services Council. Uh, uh, And in their regard, it was, well, uh, how do we simplify the taxes that uh, financial services organisations pay so that they don't struggle with the difficulty of administration? Um, And even governments are on board with that because again, another piece of work Uh, was for the Queensland government looking to see whether or not duty should be removed from insurance products that protect farmers against flood, uh, drought, uh, and, of course, bushfire. I mean, you know, what else could go wrong here in Australia? Um, So everyone's looking at these things, but there doesn't seem to be uh, someone bringing all these parties together and having a collective discussion. And I I really do admire treasurers like uh, Peter Costello for being able to do that uh, in the late uh, nineties. I do admire Paul Keating for being able to do that uh, back in 85 when he introduced CGT, FBT and all those other things. And in fact, uh, one of the options back then was a GST, uh, a value added tax, but he didn't have the support uh, to get it up. So, um, but there needs to be that discussion and, and there's no there's no way of overcoming the fact that it needs to happen at government level.
0: Yeah, and, and, and that's a very good summary of, of, of that issue, Nick. And I'll I'll just uh, move on to GST and going concerns. And 2020 has been a unique year due to COVID. And as we emerge out of the pandemic, we're hearing that uh, uh, insolvency practitioners were at record lows for work in 2020. but we're hearing that there may be a significant uptick in the amount of work that they may take on. And this will cause a number of things out in the market. So I'm I'm hearing that, um, for example, large large shopping centres are approaching competitors as to whether they um, want to take on new retail space. Um, We're we're hearing that uh, only today that the banks are saying that they're going to take a much harder line when it comes to COVID impaired loans. So there's always winners and losers in situations. So yes, there are people that will will not be doing well, but there, there, there is probably that one generation opportunity for buyers out there to buy distressed assets at well below their market value. Now, when it comes to going concern the provisions, Nick, um, how do you, we often see people trip up on them? So when it comes to that term, um, having the continued operation of the enterprise, and 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 making sure that when you uh, buy a business as a purchaser that it it retains its GST free status, what what do uh, what does what do our audience need to be mindful of? I think um, the risk
2: of Uh, applying for the uh, sale of going concern concession, George, um, has been heightened in the current environment. Uh, And you're quite right. Uh, You know, there's some bits that are easy to comply with, which are uh, the parties agreeing and documenting their agreement that they've uh, uh, elected the going concern treatment. Uh, There are some bits that have always been a question of fact and degree, which are around... Whether or not the vendor is transferring all things, all things necessary for the continued operation of uh, the enterprise, but but the risks I think right now have been uh, uh, heightened a little bit because I suspect a number of businesses um, have either temporarily suspended trade, and we're seeing people like airlines no longer flying to Australia. They suspended trade and uh, I I was in the city earlier this week and a lot of the cafes where I would probably go for my coffee or my lunch uh, have all closed and may not open again Uh, so there's a number of businesses that have actually closed and as the name implies uh, going concern uh, the question arises well what happens if I've temporarily suspended my business Uh, can I now come back and try and avail and sell it as a sale of a going concern. And we're we're quite fortunate again in the tax office have uh, highlighted this type of issue in their public ruling. Uh, I don't have uh, the code, Nicole, but but I'll give you the ruling reference uh, 2002 Um, slash five. They have said if you're simply temporarily closing, Uh, for a short period uh, then that won't necessarily disqualify you Um, but I do think again it's going to be a question of degree Um, have you ceased or have you just simply suspended so I I think the way people document uh, their actions so in other words um, how they minute what they're doing uh, if they're required to maintain minutes um, I think questions around if you're selling your plant and equipment off, then it's pretty difficult to say that you're uh, continuing with that business. Um, if you're surrendering licenses or permits or things that are required for the continued operation of the business, then I think you're increasing your risk. So I, I do think prospective vendors and purchasers uh, need to look at it much more carefully now than they ever have before, George, for those reasons.
0: Yeah, look, I, I I vigorously agree there, Nick. And because when it comes to all things necessary, it, as you touched upon, it can be a question of fact. We welcome the ATO's um, honesty and uh, uh, concessional approach in that regard. But when it becomes a question of fact, we, we do open up that pandemic. Pandora's box.
1: Can I just uh, probably just ask what are the typical things that might not be included in the circumstances? I mean, the conditions are that the sale includes everything that's necessary for the continued operation of the business. What are the typical things that you see, Nick, that might not actually be part of the sale and therefore might mean you're not meeting the condition for it to be GST free?
2: Um, and if I can just go to the simplest one, which would be a commercial building and uh, a commercial building that's currently partly tenanted, but being marketed uh, to try and occupy the full building. Um, if a purchaser came along and uh, said they wanted vacant possession of that building, then the vacant possession sale wouldn't qualify as a going concern. Um, but if they left it intact as it was, uh, then it would qualify right. as a going concern. and. Uh, If I can just touch on a similar theme, which is, again, the adverse impact uh, on the economy of COVID, and while we're discussing buildings, the idea of someone having commenced the project with the idea of building apartments for resale, and uh, uh, the resale, or for sale, I should say, not resale, for sale, uh, the sale of new residential accommodation is subject to GST, but the leasing of residential accommodation is input taxed it's not subject to gst Um, although they started the project with the idea that they would build new apartments and then sell them um, the market for some reason in their assessment might be less desirable to sell now and then they decide to try and lease those apartments I think that situation is gonna be faced by a lot of developers. And the question then becomes, well, if you start leasing the building, uh, during the project phase, you would have been claiming GST credits on the basis that you were going to be making a taxable supply of new residential. Now that you're leasing them or marketing them for leasing, well, you've eroded, you've eaten into part of that creditable purpose because you're now also using those same apartments for making input tax supplies. So all of a sudden you now have an apportionment event. And again, to all the property developers and the people that advise property developers, um, I would be very mindful of what happens when you start taking actions that change your planned and intended use to a different use. And those two uses, the original intended use and the change use uh, have different GST consequences because you will have adjustment events. And uh, um, I can see that one coming up a fair bit. And we all know that, that,
1: that um, calculating and increasing or decreasing adjustment is not an easy task.
2: <laughs> no. Um, no, but you now need to be mindful that it's, it's gonna be more likely to happen as people start to adjust their plans.
1: Mm. I'll just um, just return to that ruling you said, there's, I think there's a, um, a, a um, QC code for that, but you were talking about GSTR 2002 slash five, when is a supply of a going concern GST free? So that was GSTR 2002 slash five.
2: Absolutely. And, and somewhere in there towards the end of that ruling where they start to talk about peripheral issues, uh, they do contemplate what happens with temporary closures.
1: Great. So that could be very useful then for those who, particularly in um, Melbourne and in Victoria, where there has um, been a very significant um, lockdown um, period, that might be very useful. Thanks for that. And just
2: also in terms of that building example, Nicole, if I could mention GSTR 2009 slash four, which deals with uh, new residential, uh, where there has been a change in use. Uh, And, again, the Commissioner contemplates what happens in those circumstances, and it might assist people with that difficult calculation that you've mentioned.
1: And, actually, George, might be worth us just talking about um, the Tax Banter uh, um, training products that we have. In February uh, this year, we're delivering a GST special topic, which is available via, you know, perhaps the accounting firm that... that, um, uh, utilises tax banter training but can, you can also attend a public offer session as well to get that um, special topic training on gst we've also previously done a gst topic on property development um, we did two um, sequential ones one on income taxing property development and one on gst so they're also i find myself on a regular basis with client queries returning uh, to both of those um, special topics yeah
0: and, and and thank you for adding that nicole and if I could just close out that discussion, um, it's important, as Nick highlighted, that there's contemporaneous file notes always kept as to what actions that um, a firm will take. But critically, to make sure that the, that the the taxpayer is on board with the right tax advice, I I think that's a critical point, Nick. And if I could move us across to. Uh, a discussion around GST and financial supplies. Financial supplies, unlike all other input tax supplies, are eligible for reduced credible acquisitions. So um, you can actually claim a a reduced input tax credit amount. Uh, But um, I tend to find financial supplies is that one area of GST law that people tend to avoid. Um, because it actually requires an understanding of how banking, insurance and financial products work, and also how related laws work and interact with GST laws. So um, at a simple level, um, there's a difference between bank fees and merchant fees. Generally with uh, the, the bank fees, there's no GST in them because there's no, uh, uh, it's an input tax supply. But when it comes to the merchant fees, they are subject to GST. So um, businesses need to be aware of those, um, those differences. So, Nick, if I could touch upon financial supplies, the GST financial acquisitions threshold often catches taxpayers unaware, in particular when buying and selling shares. What tips do you have for our listeners when it comes to that financial acquisitions threshold?
2: Um, again, if I, if I can come back to uh, the, the best of times or the worst of times type uh, statement that you made earlier, George, which was uh, even though these might be very difficult times for some people, um, there's also opportunities in the market for people to acquire businesses. Um, so if people are looking at making uh, acquisitions of businesses through shares, or through units in a unit trust or through an interest in a partnership. But if we just deal with shares, um, shares for GST are treated as input tax um, and they're not subject to GST because they're treated as financial supplies. Uh, The costs associated with making uh, acquisitions of financial supplies, uh, unfortunately, are not fully creditable as you've already alluded to the input tax credit is denied. Uh, In some circumstances, it may qualify for reduced credit acquisition. Now, those rules are subject to a de minimis test, uh, which again, you've touched on, which is the financial acquisitions threshold. And the FAT, if I can use the acronym, um, is set at a level of $150,000 GST or 1.650 of GST inclusive costs measured in a 12 month period. Uh, And if you exceed that uh, threshold of 150,000 measured in a 12 month period, and it's a rolling 12 months. So the current month plus the last 11 or the current month estimating the next 11. um, If you exceed that, then you have to uh, deny yourself input tax credits to the extent that they relate to making input tax supplies. Now, the first thing is not every business is going to uh, exceed the FAT. Uh, Some large corporations just assume that they've exceeded the FAT and deny themselves credits because uh, administratively that works for them. But at the SME end, I think any time that you undertake one of these unique transactions, Uh, you really should uh, do a quick calculation as to how you're tracking against the fat. Um, So calculate it. Um, Not only does it come up when you're looking to do uh, an acquisition of shares, um, it also may come up when you're looking at issuing share capital because you may need to fund your business a little bit better or you're looking to issue further units in the unit trust because you're looking to fund your business a bit better. So you should also look at it in those situations as well. Um, A a trap that I think a lot of people fall into uh, with the fat is uh, if I, for instance, acquired uh, tax advice in relation to a a share acquisition um, and the share acquisition falls over Uh, And if, at the time I acquired that tax advice, uh, the fat had been exceeded so that I would have to deny myself uh, the input tax credits embedded in that tax advice, Uh, that answer sticks forever in relation to uh, creditable purpose and Division 11 and the entitlement to input tax credits. But if the transaction falls over, Uh, The fat recount starts again and that transaction no longer is taken to relate to making a financial supply. Um, It's excluded from the fat calculation going forward. So I think that's one thing that people need to focus on. Uh, And the second thing is the concession for borrowings. Um, I mentioned a moment ago uh, capital raisings. Um, being caught p- as part of the FAT and also resulting in a potential denial of GST credit, uh, borrowings uh, where they're used in your business rather than for on-lending, but used in your business to fund working capital or whatever, um, don't count towards the FAT. Uh, and in addition to not counting towards the FAT, um, they're also continue to be eligible or the costs related to the borrowings continue to be eligible for input tax credits. So that's the other trap that I think people tend to, to uh, miss out on.
0: Oh, and, and thank you for adding that, that uh, often forgotten uh, exception around borrowing uh, for uh, under-input tax supplies, Nick. Um, if I could just touch on one more financial supply matter with uh, being invoice financing. It's becoming increasingly popular um, out there in the market. And what tips do you have for our listeners when, if they're going to consider uh, taking on invoice, in invoice financing?
2: I think, I, I think that's a really useful point to tie up financial services on, uh, George. Um, invoice financing is effectively the sale of the receivable or the sale of the debt. Uh, which is a chosen action uh, and which for GST purposes is listed in the regulations as a financial supply. So whether you sell the receivable or buy the receivable, uh, both parties are taken to be making a financial supply. And even though you're using uh, the invoice financing in the same way that you might use a borrowing, uh, the sale of the debt, is not a borrowing. Um, uh, Even though borrowing is defined quite broadly, um, it usually means something that involves you taking it now with an undertaking to repay. But if what you're doing is simply selling the receivable, you're not borrowing. So uh, people that are utilizing invoice financing should consider the financial acquisitions threshold because all of a sudden, it's applicable to them in relation to those costs. Uh, And secondly, they should be mindful that there's a hidden GST cost that might make the cost of invoice financing slightly worse than borrowing.
0: And that's a great way to sum up uh, financial supplies. If I could just move forward into private binding, that private binding ruling space, Nick, and I know you've had lots of experience with drafting private binding rulings in the past. I've heard that some private binding rulings when it comes to complex uh, matters um, can go over hundreds of pages, in particular with extent to credible purpose rates for banks and credit unions. But some of the simpler uh, private binding ruling applications may only be a couple of pages. For example, when uh, applying to uh, use the margin scheme. So do you have any tips for our audience when it comes to uh, preparing a private binding ruling and and just making sure that they can get them out there and not just balking at the potential cost and what are the benefits of uh, preparing a succinct and a uh, factually complete private binding ruling?
2: Um, it, it's, it's, a pretty, it's a pretty important uh, consideration, George. Um, uh, I, I usually would encourage people to ask the question, uh, why do I need the ruling? And uh, one that I'm currently involved with relates to uh, legal services uh, that are provided overseas to Australian residents in relation to interests that they have overseas. Um, So the question becomes, uh, is it something that should be subject to Australian GST or not? And the reason the the legal firms involved would need to know the answer for certain is, uh, they need to know whether or not to render their account with GST because if they get that wrong and render their account without GST, uh, by the time they discover that GST should have been payable, there's a good chance their client has moved on. And you know, the best case scenario will be the client is still around but is gonna to refuse to pay you the additional amount because that's not what they contracted. So sometimes you need to know the answer because it's going to erode your margin it's going to be a cost to your business. Um, Other times you should ask the question, do I really need to know the answer or is there some alternative way of restructuring? Uh, And if there's an alternative way of restructuring, um, you should consider the merit of that. But if you are going to apply for a a GST ruling, then uh, making sure that you accurately document the transaction Uh, is vital Um, the ruling is only as good as the facts that are summarized in it and not suggesting that the ato readily walks away from rulings but um, they don't take kindly to believing that the facts might have been misrepresented to get the desirable answer uh, when all along the facts would have produced a different answer had there been full disclosure so i would really focus on getting the facts right? Um, I, I probably want to leave it there, George.
0: Yeah. Well, um, but it is a,
2: an important that, question. That's
1: probably good advice for any circumstances where someone's considering a private binding ruling. Uh, you know, it's a, a pretty u- useless or perhaps worthless piece of paper if you haven't actually documented the facts correctly and accurately. Uh, you then, you know, bec- really become un- unable to rely on it.
2: And and on that, Nicole, and, and, and I'm not going to sort of cast aspersions against people in the market but some advisors uh, do have reputations for wanting to leave certain critical facts out of the ruling request and if your advisor tells you well look let's not mention a b or c um, then you should move to another advisor because Mm, that's a recipe for disaster down the track and a little bit like the vendor example Um, you know, you'll be chasing that advisor looking for compensation later on and you may or may not get it.
1: Yes, yep,
0: good point. And uh, and that's a great summary of the issue. If I could just move us on to our last topic, which will be GST and property. And uh, property continues to be an area where we see the ATO generating audit adjustments. So if I could move on just to the first topic um, within property. And we saw this recently, Nick, with the San Remo Heights case uh, determined in the AAT on the 9th of October 2020. It was found that uh, the taxpayer was liable for GST on the sale of two lots of vacant land uh, recently in 2018. And in total, the company had only sold 12 lots over a 56 year span. it brings forward the question Is the sale of real estate part of your enterprise? So it's something that really needs to be thought about, isn't it, Nick?
2: I t- totally agree. And um, Nicole's mentioned that you have uh, on your system somewhere a property special topic, and it might be worth uh, referencing that here. But if I can just quickly go through San Marino. Um, the the AAT decision is very well written, very clear and concise. And a, a former colleague of mine, Robert Olding, uh, 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 is the AAT member that wrote the decision. Uh, and, and if I can just quickly revisit the, the facts that you've just mentioned. So uh, they acquired the land in 62, uh, between 62 and Uh, you know 2002 uh, they only make 12 sales Uh, on three occasions they subdivide you know some of the land into blocks of four and uh, they sell off parcels of those blocks of four Uh, the decision only focuses on the sale of two of the 12 so some of the 12 weren't uh, subject to GST and uh, part of the reason for that is that they predated GST, uh, but, but four, of them, four of them were sold in a post GST world. And then the question becomes well, why these two? And the analysis is really interesting because it is uh, a question of whether or not San Remo Heights Proprietary Limited uh, was running an enterprise. And the starting position for the tax office and also seemingly uh, the rebuttable position that uh, the, the AOT put forward was, well, if you've got a company owning those assets uh, and the company has been set up for a commercial purpose, then we're going to interpret that as having a profit-making purpose and that you're holding this land in some way to make a profit from it. And unlike uh, income tax, uh, GST doesn't differentiate between whether it's on income or capital account. Uh, It just simply asks the question of, are you supplying it in the course of furtherance of your enterprise? And because it was a company that was selling this, um, the AAT called the taxpayer to say, well, prove to us that it wasn't in the course of furtherance of your enterprise. And the taxpayer could only pull forward an argument that look, the only reason we're wrapping up uh, the sales of this land now is because uh, there's some deceased estates involved and those deceased estates need to be wound up. And in order to wind up those deceased estates, we need to make these land sales. So there was these interconnected transactions, but they couldn't go to what, George referred to earlier as contemporaneous documents or minutes or anything of that sort. And to be fair, the land was purchased in 62, um, but the subdivision happened a little later than that. The subdivision happened in uh, let's say uh, uh, 2018. Um, So they should have had records uh, relating to that. Uh, And they really struggled to, uh, and, and again, bearing in mind that the owners is on the taxpayer to prove the result, not the commissioner. Uh, the taxpayer really struggled to prove that this was not in the not in the course of furtherance of the company's business. Now, um, a sole proprietor might have a better chance because a sole proprietor might say, "Yeah, look, uh, I operate uh, uh, as a BAS agent, but I also." Uh, invest in property and my BAS agency is really what I have registered for GST and what I do on property, that's my own business. It has nothing to do with the enterprise that I operate. And I could see how they would be more able to demonstrate that. Um, But I do think for a company, it's a little bit more difficult. Uh, Hopefully the decision is appealed. So we get some further uh, judicial commentary on uh, companies owning properties.
1: I thought we might have been almost um, too late for a, a appeal times, but that would be interesting if, if it is. Certainly, we will, um, a, as you say, get more uh, commentary on that. But I certainly, um, going back to that point about the difference between a company and perhaps a sole proprietor or a trust, um, the tax ruling 2019-1 has really reinforced that position that uh, if it's a company, then there really is that assumption, that um, what we call rebuttable presumption, indeed, that if... It, the company's operating for the purpose and prospect of a profit that it's going to be returns to its shareholder. So that's a presumption that does have to be, you know, rebutted with evidence uh, by the, um, the, you know, could be the ATO if, if they felt to, or could be the, uh, the taxpayer themselves. But I think that's, San Remo case has really cemented that.
2: And if I just come in on that, um, during the course of this uh, uh, afternoon's yak. Uh, we've touched on it a number of times uh, of the importance of documentation. Um, be very careful the way you document things. Uh, please uh, uh, be considered in uh, the way you represent things on paper, uh, because different readers may interpret them in different ways. So it's important that your uh, recording of it is uh, accurate uh, and doesn't leave too much room for interpretation.
0: And, and and that's an excellent case, Nick, and I, I welcome I, that discussion that we've had there. If I could move on to another topic, which is going concerns and property. Now, um, with COVID, we might find that uh, people are deciding to um, split the sale of the business and then have a delay of the uh, sale of the real estate months later. Now, by splitting those transactions, Nick, is that actually gonna create a problem and potentially um, scope for the ATO to raise um, audit assessments when it comes to property matters? Um, George, you're you're right to be
2: flagging that as an issue. Um, And uh, again, if we just revisit the discussion we had earlier this afternoon, on all things necessary being one of the requirements for uh, uh, successfully treating something as a supply of a going concern. Um, If you're not supplying the premises, uh, then there's a question mark as to whether you're supplying all things necessary. And here it's important to say that just because you're operating from premises that you own, doesn't necessarily mean that you need to sell the premises. You might be able to provide uh, a lease over those premises to achieve the all things necessary. And the commission has also been prepared to accept uh, where you provide alternative premises. Um, Now that alternative premises, one starts raising different questions, which are around, well, if you've got to operate from a certain location, then potentially you're not supplying the goodwill that's attached to that location, you're supplying something different. Um, so I, I do think people that are looking to do things like that need to be extra cautious because they are opening up uh, the proverbial can of worms.
0: And, and thank you for that discussion, Nick. If I could just move on to one more topic, um, being GST in the margin scheme, there's very few areas in tax, Nick, that we know are retrospective but the margin scheme thankfully is one of those areas. So what tips and traps do you have for our listeners when it comes to correctly applying the GST margin scheme? Um,
2: Yeah, look, uh, I I think uh, it's important again to uh, appreciate that you need to do a fair bit of due diligence before you can successfully apply the margin scheme. Uh, The margin scheme uh, 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 requires that the vendor is actually eligible to use the margin scheme. And there's uh, an imposition on uh, the purchaser to make sure that the vendor is eligible to use the margin scheme. So you need to know a little bit about the history. And it's important that you have that history documented in the land sale contract uh, through the warranties part of the contract so that you can at least get some comfort around that. Because uh, again, worst case might become the worst case might become that that you avoid penalties simply because uh, you've taken reasonable care. I, I do think the margin scheme itself, uh, again, uh, has a range of issues, um, but that's the one that comes to mind immediately to address the question, George.
0: Yeah, look, uh, thank you, Nick, and that's a great discussion on on property matters. Um, I, I, I note that uh, we've we've been uh, yakking for a while. Um, I, I just want to tie up a couple of things. Um, Look, there's many more GST matters that we could talk about. We could talk about uh, the effect upon insurance premiums, making sure that you you claim the right portion. Um, apportionment when it comes to things like phone bills as to what's GST free and what, what is it, uh, what's a taxable supply. And maybe that would, uh, and some other GST matters that we haven't discussed today uh, when it comes to adjustments incredible credible purpose and, and other topical matters would we'll also make uh, a very interesting tax yak at some time in the future, Nick. Um, but I'll, I'll leave that where it is. Now, I'll just finish off on some blue sky thinking and some crystal ball discussion so we can uh, refocus on what we actually said at the commencement. Um, many reputable media commentators on taxation matters, Nick. Uh, proposing significant changes to Australia's GST system. Um, Two questions here to finish off on, Nick. Is 2021 the right time for GST tax reform? And looking at our options, we could, option one, we can broaden the GST base by removing GST exemptions for food, education, and other GST free supplies. Or option two, increasing the rate Um, because as you mentioned, the OECD average is significantly higher than Australia's uh, current rate of 10%. Or option three, um, someone to actually do a root and branch review of the GST system um, in order to bring in place World Best best Practice for Australia's GST Act and and its settings. So which of the three uh, options do you think, Nick, that uh, the government will... uh, Seriously consider maybe all three, and is 2021 that right time for GST reform? Um, I think uh, I think 2021 is uh,
2: uh, is the right time for GST reform and and more broadly tax reform. Um, I do want to acknowledge that governments have a lot on their plates, uh, particularly with the economic crisis caused by the COVID-19 pandemic. So I I don't want to pretend that governments uh, have resources to throw at everything. Um, But I do think tax reform needs to be broader uh, than GST. And not that GST doesn't need to be reformed, but I do think it needs to be broader than that. Um, If we look at some of the things that are facing Uh, uh, business a lot of it is around electronic commerce and the correct taxation treatment of uh, digital uh, transactions Uh, something needs to be uh, more needs to be done in that space and there are certain countries that are leading the way Um, if we look at developments that are happening relating to global warming and fossil fuel use and so on. Um, If you've got economies that raise quite a lot of uh, revenue from fuel excise, uh, you might want to think about, well, what happens when people move away from uh, using fuel towards using electric or something else to power their vehicles? So there's quite a lot of changes that are happening at a global level Uh, Domestically, for me, what COVID has really highlighted is that often people question the role of state governments, but if you look at who's done the heavy lifting in each of the states during the COVID uh, pandemic, um, it has been the state governments and the state government premiers uh, across the country have done all the heavy lifting and even on things related to aged care, which is an area regulated by Commonwealth legislation, and even in relation to quarantine, which is again, an area uh, regulated by the Commonwealth. Um, In all those areas, we've seen the states do significant things, but I'm using that to highlight the importance of addressing federalism, addressing the relationship between what we want the states to do and what they're able to fund themselves to do. Um, because they gave up their income taxing rights back in 1942. And I wasn't around at that time, but, but I, I do understand the history. They gave up their income taxing rights and they need to find the tax in some other way or they need to find the revenue in some other way. So I do think uh, uh, locally, the federal government and the states need to come together and work out how they're going to deliver all the services they want for this country.
0: Um, thank you, Nick. Um, Nicole, I, I've uh, really enjoyed your, uh, your contributions today. Are there any comments you'd like to add before we, before we uh, close?
1: No, no, it's just I, um, I am grateful that I did learn a bit, particularly about the um, invoice financing and a little bit more about financial acquisitions threshold or FAT as the acronym is, so I'm grateful for that. Um, yeah, and no, thanks very much for your time, Nick. Um, GST is such a, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I'm not sure we ever get to the bottom of all the GST issues that we could discuss, but this has um, been good coverage. So thanks, uh, both of you.
0: Nicole and George, thanks for the yak. Well, thank you, Nick. Um, thanks for listening for to this episode of Tax Yak. I've been chatting with Nick Kalanikios, Consulting Director at Cornwalls, about uh, Australia's GST's tax system and also consulting director at Shinewig Australia. Nixon, accredited GST specialist with many years of GST experience and importantly, heading up uh, in-house tax teams at Big Four banks, but also being a, a national indirect tax practice leader at uh, a Big Four accounting firm. If you'd like to connect with us on social media, you can find us at Tax Banter on LinkedIn and Twitter. Let us know your take on episodes or suggest future topics or speakers. You can also get onto the Tax Yak team on email at podcast at taxbanter.com.au and find our regular blog articles at taxbanter.com.au backslash banter dash blog if you're enjoying our podcast please take time to write a review for the show wherever you are it will help to improve the profile of the show and we'd love to hear your thoughts we look forward to you joining us next time